Before you uh, take a seat, I just wanted to give a couple of words about the song that we just sang. God's love, I think some of us are sometimes a little bit uncomfortable calling it reckless. And I understand why. I think over the last 50 years or so, that word has received a pretty negative connotation. And we equate it with irresponsibility. And that's actually an English problem more than it is anything else. Because really the word itself is not negative or positive. It's just describing something and it depends on the context and who it is. Because the word simply means to be utterly unconcerned about the consequences and the cost. That's what it means. And I wanted to read for you briefly a portion of John 15, or a portion of Luke 15, I'm sorry, that really captures this feeling, and it's captured in the song as well. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. In their view, very irresponsible. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. There's something that stood out to me in this story when we were preparing this song and this Sunday. And the the phrase that stood out to me is when Jesus said, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country? It doesn't say he left him in the pen, locked up and safe. It says he left him in the open country. He just went. He just went. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness. That Greek word foolishness is moros. It's actually the word that we get moronic from. It looks irresponsible. It looks crazy that the God of the universe would put himself on the cross for you and me. It looks insane. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, it's actually the power of God. And so, just like God's jealousy, that tends to carry a negative connotation when it's us, when it comes to his reckless love, when God does it, he does it perfectly. And so it's good for us to sing about that. And I think it's good news for you and me this morning, right? Well, pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that you left the 99 in search of us. Every one of us in this room, at some point in time, Lord, if we've given our lives to you, every one of us has been the lost sheep. And you have found us and put us around your shoulders and carried us home. We thank you for that love. We thank you for that goodness. And I pray now as we open up the word that you would speak powerfully of your character and your perfections to us, that we may be reminded of who you are. We thank you so much, Lord. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Hey, would you show our worship team some appreciation, please? Switch the piano. I also want to thank Lydia. She's setting something up for me here. We're not done with that little toy today. We're not. Oh, good morning, everybody. I am glad to be in church today. Are you glad to be in church today? Yeah, I'm really glad to be in church today. Well, we've been in a series for a little while now called Game Changers. It's five game-changing verses in the Bible. And as I've said every week, it's been my hope in this series that you would dive into your Bible, that you'd realize that there's some really good stuff in there, and uh, we've been highlighting kind of five areas of that good stuff. And today's week four, which means that we've got one more week next week, that's August 4th, and then August 11th, Pastor McNeil makes his glorious return. No, it's going to be awesome, man. He's been working up a four-week series for you guys in Jonah, and I'm really excited about it, so I hope that uh, you will mark your calendars for that. Uh, But today, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 18, so why don't you go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 18 and keep your thumb there or put your bookmark there or whatever it is, and we'll get going. First, I got a little bit of a story for you. There was an elementary teacher who was trying to teach her class about morality, about right and wrong. And so she thought she would use some examples. And so she said this, if I reported on my taxes that I made a little bit of money, and really I made a lot of money, I would be what? And they said, well, you'd be a liar. She said, okay. She said, if I had some friends over to play some games, and I peeked over to see what cards my friend had during the game, I would be what? And they raised their hands and said, well, you'd be a cheater. It's true. She said, okay, one more. She said, if I reached into a man's pocket and pulled out his wallet and took all his money out of it, that would make me what? And then a little boy raised his hand and said, that would make you his wife. (laughs) I'm kidding. I asked Caitlin if it was okay for me to tell that joke, and she said no. (laughs) Right and wrong is tricky, a little bit. Sometimes it's really, really clear. It's black and white. Sometimes it's not so much so. And who's to judge? Well, we actually have an answer for that. God. God is to judge, right? If you look in the Bible over and over again, the Bible calls God judge constantly. It says it about Jesus. It says it about God the Father. It says it all over the place. In the Old Testament, the New Testament, it calls him judge. And I think sometimes we're a little nervous about that word. Or we get a little bit weird when we think about God as being judge. But it's actually a really good thing for you and me, that God is judge. And if he's the judge, then he has a lot of decisions to make. A lot of them. And some of them are what we would call moral judgments in our lives. Clearly right, clearly wrong. But some of the decisions that God has to make as the judge of the earth are what I would call sovereign judgments, meaning 
what he's going to allow to happen and not to happen, and how he's going to move history, you know, in and out and within his will and all of those incredible things that are beyond my brain, quite frankly. Now, this is all good until we come across the time in our lives, and this happens to every single one of us, when we disagree, we disagree with God about a decision that he has made. And it could be morally, it could be, you know what, God said that, you know, this thing is wrong and I think it should be right, I think it should be okay. We have a whole society that's doing that right now, right? But there's other times in life when it's not a moral thing, something went down in my life and if I'm honest, I I raise my hand to the Lord and I say, I think maybe you got this one wrong. Well, there's one simple, important truth I want to get across to you this morning. And today, this sermon is not about anything that we're doing wrong. We've got plenty of sermons for that, okay? Because we've got plenty of wrong that we do. But today, honestly, is a reminder for all of us. It's a reminder of something that I think every one of us knows. I think all of us have learned it at some point in time or another, But I think it's something that over time, if we don't remind ourselves of this good truth, then we're actually going to be operating at less than full capacity with our faith on a regular basis. And so this truth is today's main idea. I don't want you to miss it. It's very, very simple. And here it is. God gets it right every time. Okay? God gets it right every time. Now, you're going to hear this a lot today's sermon because it's something I really want you to know. And it's something that you really need to know on a regular basis. That whatever judgment call it is, whatever decision it is, God always makes the right decision. Always. There are times, though, where it doesn't feel like it's the right decision. So, Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis chapter 18, we meet Uh, a man named Abraham. Now, if you have been reading Genesis 1 through 17 to this point, uh, then you would know that Genesis is kind of the beginning of the whole thing. It's the first book in your Bible. Right at the beginning, it says God created the heavens and the earth, right? So he created everything, and then he created people, and of those people, he called one man. His name was actually Abram at the time, and then God gave him some extra letters, and he became Abraham, right? Right? And he called him out of a place called Ur. This is true. I've got a map for you, actually. Uh, That's that red box in the lower right-hand corner from your perspective is where we think Ur was, and that was the name of the city. Ur. Hey, you know, if I were Abraham, I'd be like, hey, I'm down, man. I don't want to live in Ur anymore. Take me somewhere else. And so he... God calls him to leave his home, to leave everything that he knows, and he does it in faith. He walks out, and he follows God, and he's on a journey toward what we know, and what we call is the promised land. It would become Israel. He'd become the father of many nations. But we're not there yet in the story. We're not there yet. (coughs) We are in the middle of the journey. And in the middle of the journey, in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham and his wife Sarah are tenting. They, they have to tent on the way. They're just pitching a tent and staying in different places there on this journey. And they are near, at this time, a couple of cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Now, if you know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah, it's pretty ugly stuff going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a complication, though. Abraham's nephew, Lot, lives in Sodom. So now that you have the scene, we begin the scene that we're starting with today. Abraham and Sarah are in their tent, and they're hanging out, and all of a sudden, they're visited by three mysterious men. If you read on, you know the identity of the three serious men. They're three serious. Well, they're serious. Mysterious, though, as much as they're serious. Three mysterious men. Two of them are angels, and one of them is the Lord himself. Can you imagine getting that visit? (laughs) That would make me shake in my skin, I think, a little bit. So let's read. Genesis chapter 18, verse 16 is where we're going to start. Verse 16. So the men have been staying for a little while. Abraham and Sarah show them incredible amounts of hospitality. And then we come here. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? (laughs) Abraham can hear him. (laughs) This is kind of like if you're with a friend and you're hanging out and you're having a conversation and you're like, I don't know if I should tell you this. Well, when you say that, you've already decided you're going to tell them this. I don't know if I should tell you this. Okay, I'll tell you. Right? This is kind of, it just makes me laugh. Scripture is funny. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. Like we said, Israel. All the nations on the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing, this is key, what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, it sounds a little strange for God to say this. I've got to go down and do some recon. I've got to investigate. Well, he's communicating himself to Abraham in a way that Abraham will understand. God already knows what's going on. He knows intimately. He's always perfectly informed of every single situation. But he's letting Abraham in here. He's pulling him in, and by pulling Abraham in, he's pulling him in behind the scenes of his decision-making process. Because as we see how God decides things and how he considers things and how carefully and thorough he is about going to investigate something he already knows, we see and gain confidence in just how right God is about everything. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but in Ezekiel chapter 16, we get an actual list of the sins that are happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's an ugly list. Okay, there are sexual immorality going on, but not just that. There's the poor being ignored and mistreated. There's all kinds of rampant idolatry, everything like that. It is a really, it's a hotbed for evil. And one of the things that we can draw from the first bit of this uh, passage here is that if God gets it right every single time, and he does, there is a right to get Let me explain. If God gets it right, there is a right to get. There's a lot of people in this world today that will tell you and me that right 
is a matter of preference or a matter of perspective. That what is right and what is wrong is really kind of, you know, as long as you're not infringing on somebody else's rights, then kind of you get to decide whatever you want to do and whatever is right and whatever is not right. And people tell you this. They say, well, it works for them. If it works for them, then who am I to judge? And they say that there isn't some standard of rightness. It's just kind of subjective. Whoever, whoever decides whatever feels good for them, if that's what they want to do, then that's what they get to do, and that's what they'll say. But that's not how the world works, is it? The answer is no. That's not how the world works, is it? No. All right. Well, I think of music when I think of this. Um, it's all right. Can I play a little bit? It's all right. Right? That's right. I practiced for you guys. Okay, we know that song, right? See, when I was like, when I was like 10 years old, my mom put me in piano lessons. I didn't want to do it. She's like, it'll really help your brain development. <laughs> I'm 10 years old. I don't care about my brain development. And then she's like, well, it's, it'll teach you important lessons about life. Well, it turns out she was right. Because some 25 years later, here I am communicating an important lesson about life to you using the piano. Thanks, Mom. When I took piano lessons, there was this thing called sheet music. They'd lay it in front of me, right? And my thing is, I, <laughs> I wanted to play everything but what was on the sheet. That didn't sound fun to me. But they were insistent. They're like, no, you need to play what's on the sheets, right? There are right notes and there are wrong notes. Life works the same way, actually. There's a grand symphony that God is writing, right? And in his symphony, because he's the judge and he gets to be the one that decides, there are right notes and there are... Wrong notes. And here's the thing about wrong notes. You know when they're hit. It just, it does something to you, right? There's harmony and then there's disharmony. And when there's disharmony, it just, oh, it just kind of grates at you. It just makes you want to puncture your eardrums, right? <laughs> but this, this is, okay, so in the Old Testament, there's a word that's translated peace, and it's shalom. And the best image for shalom is harmony harmony. Everything works together just as it was written in God's grand symphony. It works. When we sin, we hit the wrong notes. And there were some seriously wrong notes coming out of Sodom. Massively wrong notes. And we actually know this. We know we're hardwired to know that there is a standard for rightness, right? We know this. In fact, there's, there was a New York Times article that was about morality, and it was social scientists that were studying this over a long period of time. This is what they concluded. There is a system that constrains human behavior so tightly that many rules are the same or similar in every society throughout history. 
Do as you would be done by. Care for children and the weak. Don't kill. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't lie. We know this. It's pre-programmed. And some people look at that and say, see, humanity is fine. We've come up with these rules and we do this. No, no, no. Because Christians look at this and say, well, yeah, that's because God pre-programmed us for this. And something is right because God decides it's right. Okay? God doesn't meet the standard. God is the standard. Yeah, we have to get this. If he gets everything right, and he does, it's because he is rightness. You understand? There is, and so for us, there are right notes and there are wrong notes. And when there are wrong notes being hit, the judge of all the earth has to do what? He's got to correct it. He's got to do something about it in order for him to continue to stay good. We sang this morning about God's goodness. We said God is so good. And what do we mean by that? I think sometimes we simply mean that God has given me good things. And that's good. That's a part of God's goodness. When we sang about God's goodness this morning, I thought about my son's smile. Really. I did. God has given good things. But when we say God is good, we have to add to that definition. When God is good, we say this. He is incorruptible. He is totally good. We know crooked judges, right? We have them in our world. God's not one of them. God is incorruptible. It's good that he is this way, and it's good that he judges evil. And this is what he's here to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going down there in human form. He's making the walk. And we need to know this before we go on to the rest of the story. Because if we know that he is perfect in his moral judgments, then that's going to give us the foundation that we need to step forward and watch what God does when the situation isn't so black and white. Let's continue on. Genesis chapter 18, verse 22. The men, the three serious, mysterious men, (coughs) turned away... And went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him. Don't miss that language. It's the language of a lawyer who approaches the bench. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Uh oh. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Okay, well, things are not as simple as we once thought they were. We thought, okay, Sodom and Gomorrah, big heap of wrong, big heap of bad notes, get rid of them. And Abraham's going, but what, but what if, and I'm prob- he probably has his nephew in the back of his mind as he says this, what if there are righteous people in there? Are you just going to let them go with them? Is that going to happen? The situation is not as simple as we once thought it was. This is a harder decision to make now. Well, we're going to watch God's decision-making rise to the occasion. Because it always does. Because God gets it right every time, right? Okay. Here's the thing. Sometimes in life, it's not that there's a wrong note that's been hit. Sometimes in life, there are notes that are right notes, but they feel wrong. Back to the keyboard. This is a major key, right? 
What's that? It's a minor key. So sometimes, things are going good. But sometimes, as I'm going through life, God allows something that doesn't quite sound like the rest of the major key stuff in my life. It's a minor key. And I think, well, that's a wrong note. Well, actually, no, it's not a wrong note. It just feels wrong, right? As I'm going through life, the diagnosis wasn't what I thought it was going to be. The report is not good. The news is not good. Financially, the news is not good. Or the relationship, the friendship that I've been working on for such a long time, they are just choosing to abandon our connection, even though we've been friends for such a long time. Or my kid is making decisions that I can't control, and they're destroying their life. I don't know what your minor note is today, but you've probably got some in your life. They don't, they're not wrong, they feel wrong, but God has allowed for them to happen. And Abraham is sitting here going, well, if you decide to sweep away the righteous, that feels wrong to me. And he's doing this respectfully, but sometimes we even go into the disrespectful area of it, where I just say, Lord, I know better than you. I would not have let this child die. I would not have let this sickness continue, all of those things. And we are placing ourselves up over God when we need to flip that script. And we need to make sure that we are always the one, as Abraham is, approaching the bench. Because God's the judge. And as we said a few weeks ago, he gets to decide. But sometimes the, sometimes the music doesn't feel right. Sometimes it just feels wrong to me. And it's in these moments that we need our game-changing verse so desperately. And it's the next one. It's Genesis 18.25. It's Genesis 18.25. He said, will you really do this? Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked in it? And then he says this, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do, what's that word? Now it sounds like Abraham's questioning God here. He's not. This is a rhetorical question. Essentially what he's saying is, Okay, this situation isn't as simple. It might not be as simple as we once thought, but I know something about you. You always get it right. You always do what's right. So what's the right thing here to do, God? What's the right thing here to do? What are you going to do? Because I know that the judge of all the earth always gets it right. And there's going to be a moment. There's going to be a moment. You might not need the full-on application of this sermon today. You need the reminder but you might not need the full-on application of the sermon today because things might be pretty good. But one, I'm telling you, take this note sheet and stick it in your wallet or in your purse or something. Take this verse and stick it in your pocket because one day you're going to be standing in the waiting room of a hospital or in the emergency room or you're going to be standing in another chaotic, crisis-centered situation and you are going to need Genesis 18.25 very badly because you are going to need to know that whatever's going to happen, whatever's going to transpire, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. right. He's going to get it right. 
doesn't feel like that all the time, but he's going to get it right. Here's the problem we have in this passage. God has two desires. He has a desire for justice, right, to right wrongs, to make sure all of the notes being hit are the right notes in his grand symphony. He has a desire for justice, and he has a desire to show mercy. Both of those things exist in God's heart. And so when we have a situation like this in Genesis 18, what is God going to do? It's very important. It wasn't new. There's an idea here that's not new to Abraham. It's a little bit new to us, though, because we have such an individualistic society. We don't think a lot about, it's called corporate responsibility. We don't think about this. Because Abraham knows this, he knows that frequently when there's one person who has hit the wrong notes in life, they've done terrible things, they have made a decision that God does not approve of, that the effects of their decision-making go out in concentric circles around them, and the corporate people are held responsible for their sin. This happens. This happened once in Joshua chapter 7. In Joshua chapter 7, And I'm just warning you, this is a little bit of a scary passage, but it's in the Bible and we've got to preach it. There's a man named Achan who is part of Israel, and they've just conquered a nation, and God said, do not take anything for yourself. Give it all to me. Don't take anything for yourself. Well, Achan took things for himself. And in in Joshua chapter 7, starting in verse 22, we see this. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, the stuff that he took. Hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, don't miss this, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned him. It was not new for Abraham to see that there's something called corporate responsibility. This is why God frequently holds cities and nations responsible for things like ignoring the poor and racism and all of those things. Even though individualistically, I might not be guilty of those things, but God will look at it and say, what are you doing to make them better society speaking. This is not a new concept for Abraham. He knows this works this way, but what he's about to do is fascinating. He, he, it's brought behind the scenes of God's decision-making process, and in this time, he acts as history's first priest, and he steps forward, and he has a question that he'd like to have answered. Let's continue on. Genesis 18, 26. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. I love his humility here. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five people? You ever been in a market where you negotiate for price? Okay, this is not a casual conversation. Abraham's risking his life a bit doing this. But this is the image that we have in mind. 
If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him and said, what if there are 40 found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. He knows he's pressing his luck. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, who ended the conversation? (laughs) He left, and Abraham returned home. Now, if you read on into Genesis 19, you know what happens. The cities get destroyed. God lets Lot and his family go more out of kindness than anything, because as we see later on in 19, Lot's not righteous either. But this is what happens. So why? Why do we have this episode here? Why the negotiation process? Why does God bring us behind the scenes in his decision making? It's because we need to know that even when the situation is not as clear cut as we'd like it to be, God's decision making rises to the occasion and he gets it right every time. But there's something else that's happening here. I'm going to go back to the keyboard. When I was in piano lessons, the first thing that they taught me was a scale. First thing. C scale. Did you see that technique? You got to roll it over. I probably did it wrong still. When Abraham approaches God, he starts at 50. And then he goes down to 45. And then he goes down to 40. And then he starts saying, well, I'm going to start going in 10s. I want to see how far down this goes. So he goes down to 30, and he goes down to 20, and then he goes down to 10, and then it stops. Well, as you're reading this, it's supposed to well something up inside of you. (laughs) You stopped at 10? He said, yes, at 10. What? There's another question that doesn't get asked that we're supposed to ask as we read this passage. And it, we end up with this feeling right here as we, as we read Genesis 18. Check it out. <laughs> Where's... Where's the resolution? Where's the next question? Because the question is, if you said yes at 30, you said yes at 20, you said yes at 10, what about one? What about one? If there's one righteous person, if all, of the, if all the whole thing is a dumpster fire, if they're all evil, but there's one righteous person, would you say yes? God would say yes. If Abraham had asked that question, God would have said yes. But the reason we don't get the question and the reason that doesn't happen is because there are no righteous people there. Abraham was acting as he got brought into God's decision-making process. He's acting as history's first priest. 
And as a priest, he's stepping in for the sinful people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's saying, hey, if there is, I know that corporate responsibility says that the few who sin and the many can be held responsible for the few, but what I want to know is, can it work in reverse? Can it work in reverse? Can, can the whole lot of sinful people be made forgiven and righteous if there's just a few righteous in them? Almost like an inoculation. Is that possible? Can it work that way? And he went down to 10, and he couldn't get the job done because he didn't have what he needed, which was the one righteous person. He didn't have it. He didn't have it. We do. All of this should start to feel very familiar to us. I want to go to Romans chapter 5. Paul says this in verse 15 in Romans chapter 5. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Listen to this. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. God would have said yes. Why? He has two desires. He needs to show that he is just and to preserve justice, but he also desires to show mercy. And this is the issue. Here's the problem. Because justice demands that evil be eliminated, that the wrong notes be eliminated. Here's the problem. You and I are evil. So if he does the thing that's just, we go with everything else. We get destroyed. But he wants to show mercy. So what does God do in his supreme decision-making? He sends Jesus. He sends Jesus who satisfies both things. He satisfies the justice of God because he took on the wrath of God on the cross. Every sin was paid for rightly. The right notes were restored. Everything was made right in him. And yet because it was him in our place, God can show mercy to all of us. And all of us who are unrighteous are made righteous by the one man. Here's the reason I wanted to give that to you today. Because if God solved that problem, if he got that one right, the justice and mercy problem, and my sin and your sin and all of those things as the judge of all the earth, he nailed that one, he got your situation right too. He got it right. He's getting it right. Might not feel right. 
but he's getting it right. And at the end of history, when we're standing at the end of this age and we're into the next age where Jesus is ruling the earth once and forevermore, we are going to stand at that point and we're going to look back at these times in our lives and we're going to say one very, very important thing. God got it right. Every time. I didn't think he did. I think he messed up. Or maybe he was sleeping at the switch, but he wasn't. He got it right. Absolutely right. Would you stand with me, please? Jesus made a way for God's mercy to come to us by satisfying the justice of God. That should change how we interpret life. Knowing that God gets it right every time, it should change how we interpret life. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will, every single time. If there's anybody in Scripture who would have a complaint about that, it would be Joseph. Joseph, at the end of Genesis, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and then to follow that right up, he was imprisoned unjustly for something that he didn't do for over a decade. Treated terribly. If anybody could say, well, this was bad. This was the wrong decision. It would be him. But that's not what he does. He says this to his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? No. I'm not above him. I'm below him. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Oh, what words. I don't know what it is that you are facing today that feels wrong or what point you may have decided you kind of disagreed with how God handled something or handles something in life. But I'm telling you right now, the judge of all the earth will do right. He gets it right every single time. And so you can stand up and you can say, I don't know where this thing in my life came from. It was intended to harm me, but God meant it for good because he gets it right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this powerful reminder that you are a good judge and you make good decisions. And I pray that we will have confidence in that as we move forward, no matter what it is that we're facing, that we'd have confidence in this Lord, that you always get it right and that that would bring us a profound sense of comfort in our lives as we endure things we need to endure, as we enjoy the things you want us to enjoy. Lord, we thank you. Walk with us as we walk from this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. See you guys next week.